welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. In Isaiah 58, we're talking about the way maker. This is lesson number three on the way maker. How many of you know that our God is a way maker? That he is a miracle worker? That he is a promise keeper? That he is a light in the darkness? So he is our way maker who can make a way where there is no way. But I want us to read these verses in Isaiah 55 because they really speak to that end. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my, your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, mm -hmm, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and make it to bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So in this section of scripture, we have a revelation of the fact that God's ways and God's thoughts are much higher than our ways and our thoughts. And I think everybody here would agree to that, right? Amen. Absolutely. Well, our God is a way maker who specializes in making a way for us in seemingly impossible situations. And we've been talking about that. But these verses tell us something that's true. And that's this. His ways and his thoughts are much higher than our ways and our thoughts. And so our way may be one way, but his is another, and his is much higher than ours. As a matter of fact, he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth. If you're just traveling to the moon, that's, um, to the sun, that's 93 million miles away. But if you're traveling to the farthest galaxy of light, we can see through the Hubble uh, telescope, what are we told? It's like 13 and a half billion light years away. That's a little bit higher than what I can think. What about you? So he is saying that my ways and my thoughts are so much higher than yours, you can't even calculate that. It's impossible for you to calculate that. So man is limited in his abilities, his resources, his wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding of things. And so because of those finite limitations, his way could be this way over here. But God is not limited in resources. He's not limited in ability or power. You see, he is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. He is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. So his way is not limited to the resources of man. Man's ways are limited in resources. God's are unlimited. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 3.20, it says that God is able to do for us exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think 
according to his divine ability that's efficiently operative in our lives. And so what he's telling us is this. Set aside your ways and your thoughts for a moment. Think about my credentials and come over here on my side and let me infiltrate your mind with my ways and my thoughts so that you can cooperate with me so I can do for you exceeding abundantly above all you can even ask or even think. That's what he basically is saying. So you see, man's way is limited, but God's ways are not limited. And that's because he's omniscient and he's omnipotent and also he's omnipresent. If we could be everywhere at the same time, we might think a little differently, wouldn't you say? But that's impossible for us. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 25, look and, look and see what this says. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So here you are, you find yourself on this, say, path, and you come to a crossroads, or maybe many different roads leading. What do you, which way do you go? What do you do? Well, this path over here is beautiful. There's a bunch of trees. There's flowers lining the path. This one over here, not so inviting. Which way are you going to go? Typically, man looks at this way and says, well, that's the better way to go. I'm going to go that way. But God knows at the end of that path is death. This way over here doesn't look too enticing. It doesn't seem too logical or that sort of thing. You know, but God is saying that's the path you have to take. It may seem more difficult, more challenging along the way. But you see, God knows the end of that path. Here, the path leads to death. There, it leads to life. So which path will we choose? Now, when we say God can make a way where there is no way, and we talked about the Red Sea and how they got to the Red Sea, and how man was limited in his resources, there's no way he can cross the sea, there's no way he can go to the left or right because there's mountains, and there's no way they could retreat and go backwards because the Egyptians are following them. Now, who would think of this resource just part the Red Sea? Dry ground underneath you. And what about this? These people were in slavery, in bondage in e Egypt for many, many years. So who would think of this? We're going to bring them out by using 10 plagues to bring the Egyptian kingdom to its foundation. And then when God brought them out into a wilderness where there's nothing but heat, during the daytime, cold during the nighttime, I'm going to make a way for them, and that way is for them to be provided for. I know what I'll do. I'll send 4,500 tons of manna every day out of heaven that they could pick up and they could eat. Manna for 40 years. If that was pizza for 40 years, I'd be in heaven. <laughs> manna for 40 years. They finally got to the place that they loathed it. Do you remember they said that? Oh, this awful manna. <laughs> Anyhow. Who would have thought that you could bring 11 million gallons of water out of a rock every single day to meet their needs for water? Who would think you could do that? Man couldn't devise that way. Man couldn't build a ship. He couldn't build a boat or an aircraft to go across the Red Sea. He also can't make provision in the wilderness because there's the desert there. And during the day, it's really hot. So he provides air conditioning when he uses a cloud. And then at night, he provides his fire of his presence. He's a consuming fire. Why? For warmth. So who would think you could have heating and air conditioning without a bill attached to it? <laughs> Pretty good, isn't it? No taxes. No bills to pay. 
you've got your heating, air conditioning, you've got your food and all that. And what about this one? You ladies, we know you love to shop. You don't have to shop in the wilderness because your, your clothes grow on your back. And your shoes on your feet. I've been wearing these shoes for... <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Who would have thought that would be the way? You wouldn't. See, man's way would have ended in death. But God's way gave them life. And gave them the opportunity to get to Jericho. Now... It's easy for us to be fooled by the way that looks good, whether it's our culture, whether it's our society, even in our own thinking. It may look, this is the way we should go. But you see, God knows the end result. And he wants to speak to our hearts and speak to our minds and communicate effectively to us so that we could take the right path and not the wrong path. Why? Because there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in the ways, plural, not just the way of death, but the ways of death. In Second Chronicles, to give you an understanding, maybe a visual here, and I pulled out this particular uh, incident that took place in the life of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, when they were encountering three armies that were coming to destroy them. They had no good intentions in mind. They were going to wipe them off the planet. Uh, you've got Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, the Ebonites. They're coming against Jehoshaphat and Judah, and they have no intention that's good whatsoever. They're going to wipe them out, period. Okay? And notice what happens here. Jehoshaphat realizes that they're going to be annihilated. So he appeals to God and says, Oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Three armies coming against them together, banding together. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. If we just stopped right there, I'll tell you what, that would speak volumes to us. Man, I don't know what to do. I'm a limited, finite being. This may look good over here, Lord, but I don't realize if that's the right thing to do or not. But I can see with my eyes that I got three enemies coming against me. You're going to wipe me off the planet. So my eyes are on you. I need direction from you. And all of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. This is how serious this was. We got the whole crew together. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Now, why did he come? Because Jehoshaphat set himself to fast and pray with all the people all together and to appeal to God and let them know, I humble myself, letting you know that I'm no match for this. We're no match for this. We need your mind, your thoughts, your ways. We need your understanding. And so he said, hearken all, all ye, Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook, before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed, for tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and his, the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before uh, the Lord, worshiping the Lord, and the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, God of Israel, with a loud voice on high. 
And they rose up early in the morning and they went forth in the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God. So shall ye be established, believe his prophets, and so shall ye prosper. And when they had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, that they should praise the beauty of his holiness, as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing to praise the Lord, set ambushments against the children of Ammon, and Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Now, we've got a lot really to unpack here, but we won't take a lot of time to do it. They're at a crossroads. They're at a place to where they're about to be utterly destroyed. They don't know what to do. Now, I would think that being the king and understanding he's got probably military, military leaders among them, I, hear, I understand they had like 11 million, I mean, 1 million, 11, 1 million 100,000 in their army. So someone had to head that thing up. So I can just see Jehoshaphat probably left the, uh, maybe the palace when he uh, went out to do something, maybe his responsibilities, whatever it was. And someone comes along and just says, we've got three armies coming against us, and they, they're coming to wipe us out. We're nowhere near being a match for them. Oh, king, what are we going to do? And I can see Jehoshaphat pulling out his iPhone or his Android and sends a text over to his military strategist. He gets the text and says, uh, oh, my goodness. Well, there's two options here, oh, king. Number one, we need to send out the negotiators. Someone needs to go and meet up with these people and have them sit down and have a conference with these people because we can't match them at all. We're going to be wiped out, annihilated. Now, if they won't listen to us, then the second thing we can do is this. We've got to fight. We're not going to lay down and let them run all over us. We're going to fight. Push come to shove. What are you going to do? Just let them come in and just wipe you out? No, we're going to do every, whatever we possibly can. Come up with some kind of military strategy so that we can overcome, so that we could possibly overcome. Well, the prophet says, you don't have to fight. Oh, wow. What kind of strategy is this? Is this top shelf military strategy to say, we're not going to fight? What are you going to do? Send out the choir. How logical is that? How reasonable is that? O king, you're going to send out the choir? Yeah. You sure that's the way you want to go? Yeah. It makes no sense. The choir in front of the army? Yes. But you see, the Ark of the Covenant is going to go with them. And what they're going to do, they're going to say, praise the Lord. For his mercy endures forever. You know what faith is all about? When you hear from God. When God speaks, be it through his word or by his spirit, you can bank on it. Faith is all about fighting with words. Fight the good fight of faith. It's not grenades. It's not missiles. It's not guns. It's not knives. It's not arrows and sword and any of that. It's with words. David defeated Goliath, not with a slingshot, but with words. He said, this day, my God will deliver you into my hand, and you, doesn't matter if you're 11 feet or 21 feet, you're going down. 
And so what does he do? He sends out the worship team. He sends out the choir. He sends out the praises. And they say, praise the Lord for he is good and his mercies endure forever. And what happens? There is an unleashing of the glorious power of the living God, the majesty of the presence of the living God. It moves upon them in such a way so that they're confounded. They don't know what to do. So they start killing each other. What's the Israelites have to do? Get the booty. Get all the gold, the silver, whatever they could collect off the people. They're all dead. Who would have thought that would be a way to go, to send out the praise and worship team? But you know what? Even though God gave them that instruction and direction, did you know that they could have rejected that if they wanted to? Now, it sounded illogical and unreasonable, but they did something that was against, basically, military strategy. But it worked, because when God's in it, it works. Now, look in the book of Numbers, because you see, if you don't do it God's way, this is the other result. Remember, man's way ends in what? Death. God's way ends in life. Look in the book of Numbers. This is the story of the 10, 12 spies going to spy out the land. They're going to get into Canaan's land. These 10 spies have convinced all of Israel that you can't fight against this, these you can't enter Jericho. There's no way you could possibly do it. The walls are great. They're thick. The warriors are many. They, we're no match. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so they all were convinced that they couldn't do it. And so they decided not to go and do what God said to do. And God was frustrated with them. God was upset with them. And God judged them and said, well, now since you didn't do what I told you to do, you're rejecting my way. He said, you're going to die in the wilderness here. And so once they got that memo, that they were going to die in the wilderness because they refused to follow the way of God, they changed their mind. And we'll pick it up from there. And they rose up early in the morning and they get up to, into the top of the mountain saying, Lo, we be here and we'll go up unto the place which the Lord had promised and we have sinned. And Moses said, My people are destroyed. My people say, he said, Wherefore, now do ye transgress the commandment of the Lord but it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that ye be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you are turned away from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up unto the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites, which dwelt in the, that hill, and smote them and discomfited them even unto Hormah. Now, notice this. When they were told to do it and that God would drive out all the Canaanites, the Amorites, and all the Hittites and the Jebusites, they didn't do it. They refused to do what God said to do when he said to do it. Well, now that they realize they sinned, now they're going to die in the wilderness, they said, oh, we're sorry, we sinned, we made a mistake. We're going to go and do what God said to do now. And he says, no, no, don't be presumptuous about this. Don't go now. Because if you go now, the ark's not going with you. You're going by yourself. You're going your way, not God's way. So they did it their way the first time. And now they're doing it their way again this time. They went out to do it without the presence of God, without the ark of the covenant. And what happened? They were all smitten. How important is it that we get the mind of God and not reject his way or his knowledge. It's so important 
that we're doing it the way that God said to do it. Let him be in control of the situation because why? He has a better vantage point. He knows better. He knows more than we do. He's more intelligent than we are. But they refuse to do that. Now look in this book of Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. And this is what we conclude. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. What an indictment against them. My people perish not for lack of praying, not for lack of church attendance, not for lack of giving, not for lack of singing, not for lack of any of those things, but for a lack of what? Knowledge, a lack of knowledge. And you know what? It's really time we talk about getting back into the Bible, understanding the Word of God. And our preaching and teaching should be based on biblical truths and not current events. God's people are lacking knowledge when it comes to operating in the things of God because they haven't heard enough of it from the pulpit. But we need to proclaim and declare and decree what God's Word teaches so people can act in line with the Word of God. So people perish for lack of knowledge. Had they followed the way of God the first time, they would have entered the promised land. But they refused. The second time, when they should have not gone, they went ahead and rejected knowledge again, and they went to do it their way again. So once again, we have man's way versus God's way. Under the leadership of, jo of Moses, they didn't get to the promised land. Under the leadership of Joshua, they did. Because God raised up a generation of faith people. People of faith. The Joshua generation is a people of faith. It's a faith generation. They were taught, your enemies defeated. They were taught, you got a covenant with God. They were taught, God brought you out of Egypt. He brought you to this place. They were taught, you got this covenant, you're circumcised, He is with you. It's a new day. The day of man is going to end. It's time to get into the promised land and eat all the good fruit of the land. It's, and remember this, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not going to get in there by yourself. These are the things, the principles that He taught them. The knowledge of God. And then the next one, the sixth one is, God's already given you the land. And then seventh, just do what he says. It may seem illogical. It may seem unreasonable. God's way may seem impractical. But it doesn't matter because if God is in it and God says it, it has to produce results. It has to. And that's what they did under Joshua. And they got into the promised land. Look in the book of uh, Joshua chapter 6. This is the instruction that God gave Joshua to get into the promised land or to bring down the walls of Jericho. Think about this. You've got fortified walls that have never been penetrated by any army whatsoever. Any army on this earth could possibly penetrate Jericho and bring those walls down. Impossible. Okay. Well, God can make a way even though it's impossible. Right. Because he's bigger and he's greater. So God tells him his strategy. Here it is. You shall compass the city and men of war go around about the city once. Thou shalt go do this six days. And seven priests shall bear the ark of the ark of ark, seven trumpets of the ram's horns. And the seventh day, you shall compass the city seven times. And the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout. Everybody say shout. Shout. You think that could bring down walls? None of these moved yet. <laughs> they shouted with a what? A great shout. Sometimes people get on you and say, your people are a little bit emotional. You shout a lot. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. When God's in the shout, look out. Yeah. And the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. 
So what happened was they did that very thing. What, six times they went around one day, one time a day for six days. On the seventh day, they walked around those walls. The seven times, seven times, seven times. On the seventh time, they blew the ram's horn, the shofar, and then the people began to shout. Now, what military strategists would come up with a plan like that? I know what we'll do. We'll just walk around the walls on the seventh day seven times. We'll blow the horn. Sound the trumpet. And all look down at us and just say, I guess we give up. Really? Doesn't seem logical to me. But what happened? The whole point is this. When you do it God's way, you get God's help. When we do it God's way, we have his omnipotent power unleashed on our behalf. When we realize he's smarter and wiser than we are and we don't limit ourselves to our own finite limitations and resources and we look to God and just say, you know more than I do, so what do I do in this situation? You see, here's where the problem is for all of us. Do we take the time to get the mind of God in our given situation? Because if we don't, then basically we're leaning on our own understanding. But if we acknowledge him in all of our ways, what will happen? He'll direct our paths. Wow. Would you rather walk a path directed by God or you? I would say God, right? Absolutely. In Judges chapter 7, well, before I ever get there, let me just show you uh, just a quick testimony. Um, this is a personal testimony in my life. When there's a time in our home where whenever it rained, especially a certain rain, heavy rain, whatever, water just came flooding into my kitchen window. I mean, pouring in. The whole counter would just be full of water. And, you know, you got to put down paper towels and all that, and it's just coming from the top of the window, just pouring. This last few times, pouring and pouring and pouring. I've had people come over and people come over and people come over. Different individuals come over to my house, look it over, look over the window. Some took the window apart, put flashing in and all that, and just, just did all this work. Uh, for a few weeks, it was okay. The next thing I know, it's flooded again. Well, what do I do? So finally get in contact with Brother Jim Beck. He comes over to my house, and he's looking at the window. Then looks over to the addition. He looks at the window. Looks at the addition. When did you add that on? I said, oh, so many years ago. Okay. He's not concerned about the window at all. I see him taking apart all the siding and all that. I see him walking on top of the roof. Goes over the additional side. The side that we added on. And then I, I had to leave. He gets done with the project. He says, well, no, let me know how, what, what goes on. Since that time, it has poured, it has rained, it's just so hard and all that. You know what? Not one drop of water ever came in. I was at the point that I was going to get a new window. And someone said, why get a new window it's not, if it's not the window? I asked him, I said, Brother Jim, what did you do? He said, well, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I just traced the water. He says, I kind of figured that when you see, no one ever said this before, this addition that you added on, something happened over here, and that water, it's not the window. It's finding its way here. It's coming through the top of the window, but it's not the window. It's not the flashing. It's that. My people perish or drown for, for lack of knowledge. Just like that, 
all that time that we put up with all this, you never knew it was going to come in and flood you know, the kitchen or whatever. But because of a lack of knowledge, no one else could get the job done. Why is knowledge important? That's why. Look at Judges 7.7. 7. Good number there, wouldn't you say? Here we got Gideon. He's facing 135,000 warriors. He's got 32,000 men. They've got 135,000, four to one. But God says to Gideon, Gideon, you got too many people here for the project. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've got 32,000 men, I'm facing 135,000, it's logical for me to say I can use all the help I can get. Wouldn't you? I would think from a military perspective, that would be better strategy. But the Lord gives him a plan and says, no, no. And the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men that lap will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand and let all the other people go, every man unto his place. He reduced his army from 32,000 to 300 and says, now that's sufficient. And what happens? Once again, when we do it God's way, we get God's help. Do you think that those 135,000 are a match for God? His angels, his warring angels? Absolutely not. But the point being is this. Get the mind of God. We need to know the mind of God and do exactly what God says to do. And take the time to get his mind so that we can cooperate with him and do what he wants us to do. And if we will do that, then we get his help. When Naaman refused to dip seven times and walked away, he wasn't getting healed. But when he turned around and just said, I'm going to do what God said to do, he got healed of leprosy just like that. When Jesus told the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, if the man would have turned away and said, well, I got a better pool I want to go to. I'm not going to go to the pool of Siloam. Guess what? He wouldn't have got his sight. But because he said, I'll do what you said to do. When Jesus said to the man, take up your bed and walk. And he took up his bed and he began to walk. He was healed of paralysis because he obeyed God, did what God said to do. So in other words, God says, I've got a way that you don't know of. It goes beyond your understanding, beyond your resources, beyond your abilities. But if you'll do what I say to do, you'll get my help. Once again, would you rather have his help or yours? His mind or yours? Look at um, Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. In these verses, uh, 35 through 41... We have a revelation of how Jesus found a way. He made a way for them to overcome a storm. And at one time or another, we're all going to be in the same boat. A storm in life, right? We're all going to be there. And the same day when the evil was come, he saith, he saith unto them, let us pass over to the other side and then drown halfway through. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships, and there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so it was now full. And he was in the hinder back part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and they say to him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he rose and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased. There's so much to unpack here. Jesus, what are you doing sleeping when the boat is sinking? What a sound sleeper you must be. I'm panic-stricken. They're going under. These are skilled fishermen and sailors. They know what's going on, and they're going under. Now, there's the dilemma. What option is there here? Can you get airlifted out somehow? Absolutely not. Can anybody spare you? Absolutely not. Can someone save you? No. Is there a bridge? What, what, what natural means can we use? 
our resources are very limited. But there's Jesus lying there. Have you been in that boat before? When you live everywhere you look, there's no answer. There's no solution to your problem. And there's, there's nothing but difficulty anyway in every way that you look. And naturally speaking, it's, it's doomed. We're doomed here. Jesus is sleeping. He doesn't get too nervous about things like that. So what is his way? Rebuke the wind. Speak to the sea. Peace be still. And there's a calm. Who would have thought of that? Would you have thought of that? No one would have thought of that. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, we see something else happening here that uh, is not recorded in the others, the other Gospels. When the evening was now come, his disciples went down to the sea and entered the ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark. Jesus was now come, not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five or 20 or 30 furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea. <laughs> I'm going for a walk. Have you ever thought of that? Walking on the sea? And drawing nigh to the ship, and they were afraid, but he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. Notice they were willing to receive him into the ship. And immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. When Jesus gets in your ship, you get translocated. Now, can you think of a way for a ship with all the people in it to get from point A to point B in a heartbeat during a storm? Who would have thought of that? No one. Because you see, that's beyond our way of thinking. His way is so much higher. I know I'll just walk out there and I'll just get into the ship. And then when I get into the ship, it'll just be immediately be at shore. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? Because, once again, we're limited the way we think. You know, there are so many solutions to problems that he knows of. That if we would just tap into those resources, we could probably figure it out. But the problem is, do we take the time to get in the presence of God and really look to him for direction like Jehoshaphat did? Our eyes are on you because we don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. There's a way the waymaker will, will make. Look at this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Has anyone here ever been tempted? And the rest of you? Has anyone ever here been tempted? Sure, we've been tempted in many ways. But let's read the verse, and this is from the Amplified Translation. That's not in your notes to Amplify, but I changed it. For no temptation, no trial regarded as enticing to sin, no matter how it comes or where it leads, has overtaken you and laid hold on you that is not common to man, that is, no temptation or trial has come to you that is beyond human resistance and that is not adjusted and adapted and belonging to human experience and such as man can bear. But God is faithful to his word and to his compassionate nature and he can be trusted not to let you be tempted and tried and essayed beyond your ability and strength or resistance and power to endure. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way out. The way to escape. To a landing place. This means of escape to a landing place that you may be capable and strong and powerful to bear up under it patiently. 
What a translation of that verse. Notice the things we see here. First of all, we're all tempted, tested, and tried, no matter who we are in this life. And we've got to have the right perspective when it comes to being tempted to do things or not to do things in this life. Well, first of all, if the enemy could make us think, I'm the only one that's going through something like this. You ever notice something that you're going through that's very difficult? You might think, man, am I the only one that's going through this? He said, look, the temptations that come our way are common to man. Peter said it this way, don't be all concerned that what's happening to you is just the first time something's ever happened because all the brethren are tempted the same way. So we're living in this realm of life. We're all going to be tempted in this realm of life. So that's number one. Think right. Number two, God is not the one who's causing the problem. He's saying that. God's the one who's making a way of escape. He's not the one causing or creating the problem. You say, how can you say that? Well, I didn't say that. James did. Look at James chapter 1. This is a way that he has made for us to overcome temptation. And I'll be honest with you, few there be that find it. You know why few there be that find it? Because temptation is not nice. Trials are not nice. Difficulties are not nice. Look what it says. My brethren, here's my way out. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. What? You realize what I'm going through right now, Lord? And you say count it a holy delight, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, notice, my people perish for what? Lack of knowledge. What do you want me to know? The trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So his way of escape is for us to count it all joy. We count it all joy against our feelings and emotions because we don't feel like counting it joy. Those feelings and emotions are not in, let's say, harmony with that. So we count it all joy by faith. I'm counting it a holy delight by faith. I'm thanking you, praise God, that this is the way out. I know this is the way out. I'm going to develop patience here. I'm going to rise up above it if I do what God says to do. Now, in verse 12, or verse 13 and 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Where does temptation come from? Our own lust. As a matter of fact, remember Jehoshaphat had three armies coming against him? Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. I call them the devil, the world, and the flesh. The devil, the world, and the flesh. So the enemy will use our own feelings, emotions, our own desires within us to do what? To tempt us to walk away from what God wants so that we can have what we want. So he says everybody's the same way. So when we get tempted in these areas of our lives, what are we supposed to do? Count it all joy. We count it all joy because we know that when we count it all joy, what's going to happen to us? We're going to develop patience so that we can allow God to move on our behalf so that we're not doing it in our own strength or ability. So that's what he tells us to do. And if we'll do our part, God will do his part. So it's up to me, it's up to you to do our part so that God can do his part in bringing victory into our lives. Now, you think this starts with us? Look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, just a few verses here before we close this up. Then Jesus was led up to the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Wait a minute. His first experience in ministry after being baptized in water was that of temptation. He's tempted in the wilderness by the devil. 
And the devil is appearing to his tripart being, spirit, soul, and body. He starts with food. Turn these stones into rock. Let's read it. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was after it hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So here was God's way to deliver us from temptation. What is that? Speaking the word in that situation. Faith is a fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Jesus stood against temptation by speaking the word in that situation. If we don't know the word, we're not following the way of God. We need to know the way of God. The way of God is revealed in the word. The way maker has made a way for us to stand against that temptation that was in the flesh in the soul, there was another one, cast yourself down because it is written, angels will bear you up in their hands. And he says, no, you still can't tempt the Lord and do that, anything like that. That's presumptuous. It is written again. And then thirdly, he takes them up and shows them all the kingdoms of the world and says, well, if you'll bow down and worship me, that's a spiritual temptation. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And that's a lie. What does Jesus do in all three accounts? He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. You want to know how we can overcome the, the things that we face in this life, the temptations we face in this life? By standing our ground against whatever it is that's coming against us and start speaking the word to that situation. It is written, it is written, it is written. In the book of Isaiah chapter 63, and this really should speak to every one of our hearts, notice something here. Jesus came for this end. Who is... That should be 61. I'm sorry, that's a wrong verse. Can you find 61? 61, 1 through 3. Jesus made a declaration in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Remember that verse? He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, preach the to the captive, recount the sent to the blind. Okay. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are abound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they might be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. In these verses we have a revelation of God reaching out to hurting humanity. And providing for them a way to rise up above heartache pain, and emotional hurts. And we have it listed. We won't turn to this one, but in the book of 1 Samuel, we find David at a place, the lowest place in his life. It's at Ziklag. At Ziklag, he's at the lowest place of his life. And what is going on? The enemy came and took their wives, their children, all that they had, all their possessions, ransacked the whole place, burned it all down, and they went off with all the captives. When David and his mighty men came back and they found that they were all gone, they were all kidnapped, they were taken and all, the Bible says they cried so much that they had no more in them to cry. Their tears were absolutely dried up. That's how much they cried. They hurt so bad that they wanted to stone David. His own men wanted to stone him. What does David do? In the face of all that, he does something a way that God made for him. He encouraged himself in the Lord. Notice when there's no one else to encourage us. He encourages himself in the Lord. 
Imagine that. And when he encouraged himself in the Lord, guess what he did then? He inquired of the Lord. You see what's going on here, Lord? You see what's taking place here? I've served you all my life. I made mistakes along the way. I understand that. But you know I'm a man after your own heart. And here I am. My family's gone. My wives are gone. My children are gone. My goods are gone and all that. I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to curse myself in you. You're the way maker. You're the miracle worker. You know, you, you are the promise keeper. You are the light in the darkness. And I'm in darkness right now. The darkness of my emotional state, my emotional well-being. I know what I'm going through and all that. And I'm hurting so bad. Look at these men. My, my men are here. They're suffering. They're hurting. Their hearts are broken. But you heal the broken heart. You bind up all their wounds, Lord. And so I'm appealing to you. And now he comes and he says, now, Lord, I've encouraged myself in you. You are my way maker. What do I do? Do I chase them down and get it all back? And the Lord says, yeah, go ahead and I'll be with you. And what happens? He goes and chases them all down and gets everything back. All the possessions that they lost are brought back because he did it God's way. Okay? So with that in mind, when we think maybe we've gone through so much that we can never be a whole person ever again, there's a way maker. You know, maybe we've been attacked in this area of our lives. Our family's been attacked. Maybe our finances have been attacked. Maybe our nation has been attacked. Maybe our children have been attacked. Maybe they're not even walking with God. And we find ourselves in a broken state, hurting emotionally. What does he say? I'm a, I'm a way maker. I'm going to make a way. I'm going to give you beauty for ashes. Do you know what that means by that expression? Ashes, when you're suffering back then, like a, grieving the death of a loved one, David would lay in sackcloth and ashes. Ashes means you're grieving over something. You're having difficulty. Your heart is broken. Maybe you find yourself at the bottom of the pit like, like to say, Joseph was at that pit of despair and all that. Your emotions are just out there, man. He said, I'm going to give you beauty. Beauty, you know what it was? It, it meant a rising up out of or a resurrection out of the grieving, the heartache, the pain, the misery, the despair, the anguish, etc. I'm going to give you beauty for ashes. I'm going to make a way for you to rise up and be victorious no matter what it is that you're going through. But the thing is, don't do it your way because you see your way would be what? Allow the emotions just to control our lives. But he says, no, no, that's not it. I'm going to give you the oil of joy for mourning. You're in a state of mourning and despair once again. And it seems like these feelings are overwhelming you in such a, a powerful way that you can't come out from beneath all of that. But he said, I'm going to give you the oil of joy. The oil was the anointing. The oil was the pouring out of the oil of Almighty God. He said, look, there is a balm in Gilead. There is a physician among us. His name is Jesus and his name is as ointment poured forth. And when you get a glimpse of that, you get a hold of that and you allow him to pour the oil of joy upon you, the oil of joy for mourning. Hallelujah. I'm going to raise you up out of that despair. I'm going to raise you up out of that emotional state that you're in. I'm going to raise you up out of whatever it is that you're going through and you're going to be resurrected to a higher place. Praise God. I'm going to elevate your soul, your way of thinking. Man, to try part being his soul, mind, will, emotions, and intellect. I'm going to raise you up out of that. You have to cooperate with me and start declaring it. I've got the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise. You've been robed with all this stuff. You've been so robed around all this anguish, all this whatever it might be that's clothing you at that particular time. The despair, 
the anguish, the worry, the fear, the anxiety, all that that you've been clothed with all this time, I'll tell you what, it's time to take that cloak off, praise God. I'm going to give you the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Hallelujah. You are the redeemed of the Lord. I'm bringing you up out of the pit, the miry clay. I'm going to put your feet on solid ground and I'm going to clothe you with the toga virilla, the robe of righteousness. And you're called the trees of righteousness planted of the Lord. Praise God. Yeah, you were in a place of despair. And you were going down. And we were going under. We were lost, but God came up with a way. And we're getting towards the resurrection time. And so we'll talk about there's a way. It's called a bloody way. It's called a scarlet thread throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's the way that God made for a man to be saved, to be brought out of the depths of darkness, and to be brought into the kingdom of light. Let's all stand together before the Lord. Hallelujah. He's going to clothe us with expectancy. He's going to clothe us with great faith and anticipation that our God reigns. Our God is more than enough, praise God, to see us through to victory. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. So no matter what it is, our God reigns. He's more than enough. He'll meet our every need. But what do we have to do? Do it His way. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.